This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. Let's face it. People have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com this episode of travel today with peter greenberg is brought to you by audible.com a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial it's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from London, and in particular at the Rubens at the Palace, an amazing hotel around the corner from Buckingham Palace. What's amazing about it, it's been around since 1912, and even before then. It's actually quite historic. So many different things have happened here, so many people have stayed here, and the rooms are amazing. And my favorite thing about the hotel, but you got to ask for it, is their basic homemade signature rice pudding. Actually, a recipe from the mom of the family that owns the hotel, B. Tolman and Red Carnation Hotels. Welcoming back one of our regulars on the show, He's the editor-at-large for National Geographic Traveler, among many other titles, which are too numerous to mention. Costas Christ, how are you, man? 
Peter, always a pleasure. Thank you for having me back. You know, you're involved in so many different initiatives, and I'm always asking you one question, which I'm going to do it again, only because you always have a new, a new piece of information every time we do it, and that is, okay, who's washing towels? Yeah, we've touched on this whole notion of, you know, what do you think of this whole idea of hotels washing towels every other day to help save the planet? Well, you know, my position is pretty straightforward. Any business that can make money by helping to save the planet, I'm all for it. But Red Carnation Hotels has taken this to a different level. What they are doing for every towel you don't wash during your stay, they are contributing one British pound per day that you do that to a fund that will go out to support cultural heritage preservation, environmentally friendly practices, and of course, help protect nature and endangered species. So to me, they're translating you not changing your towel into hard cash that is supporting conservation and heritage and the, preservation. And the good news is you get to follow the money. And you get to you follow the it. money. Absolutely. Now, we're not going to sing Kumbaya right now, but I do want to talk about something else you're involved with at the International Institute for Peace Through Tourism. Look, we all know, and, and if we're lucky enough, we've experienced the idea that travel really breaks down barriers. It really does open doors. It starts a conversation in ways that other initiatives don't do. But what's new in your world about peace through tourism? Well, what's new in my world, Peter, is uh, to, over the last couple of years, I've been working in the country of Colombia. If you ever want to see an example of peace through tourism in action on the front lines, it's happening there right now. I've had the privilege to support the initiatives of President Santos, who won the Nobel Peace Prize this year. Why? Because he has worked to end a 60-year civil war to encourage rebels to lay down their weapons and become sustainable tourism soldiers instead. And it's succeeding. So instead of them washing their weapons, they're washing towels? No. Instead no. of them carrying weapons, yeah. they're becoming guides and leading tourists to understand the jungle, the remote terrain of that country, and of course, cultural heritage. What we are doing is saying that you can have a livelihood that will benefit you, address poverty alleviation, put down your arms, and become part of the Sustainable Tourism Army. And as long as it puts money in your pocket and you can actually see the, a, a consequence to your act that's positive, it's something else that you hand to your kids, too. Absolutely. And again, it's hard to wrap our heads around this, but this has been a civil war with rebels in Colombia for nearly 60 years. And that war has ended. And tourism has been a critical part of that transformation. And it's, it's sort of like taking the old uh, the poachers in Africa and turning them into the game wardens. It is. And it's not just Colombia when it comes to peace through tourism. Look at the country of Sri Lanka, another wonderful destination, a 30-year terrible, tragic civil the, war. The Tamils, yeah. Yeah. And what's happening now with the Tamils? You've got companies like Jetwing Group, a Sri Lankan company that is working to train disadvantaged youth in former rebel strongholders to become part of the tourism economy. And when I say tourism economy, I mean sustainable tourism economy. And that's important stuff. Absolutely. Because you can see it. I mean, you can actually experience it. You can actually experience it. And I was, I've made three trips to Sri Lanka in the last 18 months. I'll go back again in 2018. If you haven't been there, you should check it out. If you're a traveler, you should go with this company, Jetwing, and you will see what I'm talking about and, in action. And something else you need to know about, and I'm not trying to diss on India or Thailand, but if you're looking for an amazing elephant experience, boy, Sri Lanka's got it. Well, Sri Lanka has something they call the gathering, and it is the largest gathering of wild elephants in Asia, and it happens right in that country, and it's pretty spectacular. And it happens when? 
and it happens during the summer months. All right. So. Our summer you know, months, when, when July some, and August. When somebody calls call something like the gathering, I'm expecting elephants there holding candles. <laughs> well, <laughs> they might not be holding candles, but it's such an impressive sight. They called it a gathering because they show up each year by the hundreds. They just know. It's like the butterflies in Mexico. That's right. All right. Now, let's get serious here. You know, I'll, I'll give you some cities and you know exactly where we're going to be going. Venice, Barcelona, Bermuda, just to name a few of where the cities themselves or their elected officials, or individual citizens are saying there's over-tourism. Too much is too much. If I go to Venice in June or July, it's ridiculous. I I call the Bridge of Sighs the Bridge of Thighs because everybody's got their selfie sticks, and people are—I mean, I'm amazed people don't fall off the bridge. I think they do. I actually think they do. I mean, you can't—you're shoulder-to-shoulder pushing other people around, you know, St. Mark's Square. It's just stop it already. And yet— it's that double-edged sword, isn't it? Because it's, what does Venice make that the world consumes? And it's not Murano glass, it's tourism. So the point is, there's that trade-off, isn't it? You know, Peter, the, this is the new, I'm so glad you asked this question. This is the new thing, over-tourism, over-tourism, over-tourism. Well, guess what, folks? It's not new. In fact, the birth of the idea of sustainable tourism, about working to protect culture and heritage, about benefiting local people, was in response to the growth of mass tourism around the world. You mentioned Venice, uh, which has been in the, you know, the headlights of this whole issue. Uh, and I was just in Venice last month, and I met with local community leaders who have been raising alarm over this concern. And you know what they said to me? Please, our message is getting distorted. We're not telling people not to come. We're not telling people we're against tourism. We want tourism. We live from tourism. We want better tourism. We want tourism based on respect, on sustainable principles. But wait, let me stop right now because uh, there are some who would argue that when they that their definition of better tourism is higher demos and people who will spend more money. No, I'll tell you what their definition is that they yeah. shared with me. They said, we want small ships. We don't want mega ships that have 6,000 people that are the size of cities. You know, I'm going to give you a little, I'm, I'm going to date myself here. 1998, uh, Princess Cruises inaugura- was built in, in a shipyard in Italy at Fincantieri. They, they inaugurated the Grand Princess, which then was the biggest cruise ship. And I came on that inaugural cruise. And it launched in Venice. And we're sailing in Venice. And we're towering over the towers. It's like we're the biggest thing in Venice. It was like, what is going on here? I will tell you one of the funniest stories. There are two little blue-haired ladies on the ship, right? And they were standing at the rail as we're coming into Venice. And they had their guidebook with them. I'm not making this up. And one says to the other, did you know they got a doggy palace here? And, and she says, and says, you know, I wonder what kind of doggies they have in that palace. And I'm like saying, oh, please, please forgive me. But I, do I correct them? Do I tell them? And the answer was, nah. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I did. It was too entertaining and too disturbing. Uh, but forgetting that, that was 1998 that ship was towering. There are now bigger ships. And a lot more of them. So, for example, what they're saying is we welcome the following. We welcome river ships. You know a company. I know a company, which is called Uniworld. Yeah. They pioneered best environmental practices on river cruising. They are small. They carry 100, 120 people. Max. They integrate into the community, work with the community, give back to the community. And they don't overwhelm the community. And they don't overwhelm it. Because the reality is, folks, we call this in my world of tourism planning limits of acceptable change. In other words, the issue isn't 
how many people are too much or what they call carrying capacity. The issue is limits of acceptable change. At what point do we as locals feel our lives and our way of life is being undermined? I look at, uh, I mentioned the inside passage in Alaska, Costas. I mean, there are days in which you have 39 ships up there, and it completely exhausts the infrastructure in some of these small Alaskan towns. And what did the state of Alaska do? They put in a head tax of, I think, $25, and, and the cruise lines just made it part of the, of, of the cruise fee, and they paid it. But it didn't stop the problem. That's number one. Then Bermuda, they put in a moratorium about how many ships can actually be anywhere in any port in Bermuda on any one day. And it's maybe two uh, or maybe even one now. And their argument is, and it's an economic argument as opposed to just an environmental and commonsensical argument, that cruise ship passengers don't spend enough money. That that, that their idea of quality tourism is what's their per passenger spend? Uh, And, you know, they come in, they get a T-shirt and they leave versus someone staying at the the Cipriani in in Venice and um, spending, you know, $600 a day over and above what they're spending for the hotel room. You know, as you've heard me say before, Peter, tourism is like fire. Out of control, it can destroy everything in its past. But like fire, if we can harness it and we can manage it, it will help us survive. So what we're really talking about is harnessing and managing tourism. We have to understand that the sky is not the limit, okay? And but the, right now, you would say in July, hey, Venice is on fire. Yes, yeah. Venice is on fire. But you know what? At a certain point, you're, there's no question about it. Again, these concerns of tourism out of control and tourism damaging heritage and local people livelihood and not contributing enough to benefit a destination, that is the problem that 20 years ago gave rise to the principles behind sustainable tourism. And so, and what are those principles? We want environmentally friendly practices. In the case of cruise ships, we don't want their stacks spewing out all sorts of obnoxious stuff into our city streets. Or well, well, what they've done in Alaska is they plug in now. Which they have to. Yeah, they're, they're now required by law. Princess did it the first time. When their ship came out there, they built their own power station, and they literally took like this world's largest extension cord, huge, and plugged it from the ship to the power plant, and they shut down their, their generators and their engines. Now, in fairness to the cruise industry, they're on to this. They see the issues and they see the concerns. So we see groups like Royal Caribbean Cruise Line engaging in some best practices around the world, trying to mitigate these negative effects. We see it with other cruise companies as well. But the reality is this. It's kind of hard to have tourism behave in a way that's good when you walk into somebody's neighborhood and you got 6,000 people with you and they all get off at the same time and walk through your streets. So that dynamic has to be rethought and reconfigured. And the people who live locally have to have a voice in that. Okay, so stupid question, but I got to ask it. You have a 6,000 passenger ship show up. The minute it hits the dock, they are going to get off the ship. That's why they bought the cruise. That's right. So what do you do? You manage. You just gave examples where Bermuda said, you know, hey, guys, you know what? We're only going to allow a certain number of cruise ships imported any one time so they don't swamp and overwhelm yeah, our community. Yeah, but there's a 600-passenger cruise ship and a 6,000-passenger cruise ship. Right. Well, get the message then. At the end of the day, what is in the interest of a cruise company if it ends up destroying a destination's character and having people who live there want to throw rotten tomatoes at you when you walk down the street? 
Who's going to buy that cruise ship? The bottom line is this. If we sell cultural and nature, cultural and natural heritage experiences, authentic encounters with local people, well then, we better make sure that we are connecting and hearing the voices and following the guidance of those authentic local people. Well, one of the things that those lo- local and authentic people will tell you is, how can you have all these people on our streets? We don't even have enough bathrooms to support them. So then, change the paradigm. That means you can't have these. I'll give you an example of a, a changing paradigm, okay? The Galapagos, another but place they, in danger. But they, they went to limit it, though. They did. They limited it. They were declared by UNESCO World Heritage in Danger over the growth of mega cruise ships. And that sent everybody in Ecuador into a total panic. Oh, my God. We went from celebrated world heritage of one of the iconic destinations in the world, the Galapagos, and we ended up on an endangered list because of our tourism practices. We got to rewrite the book. And they did. And now they're back in the good graces of world heritage. But they've limited the size of the ships. That's my point. Yeah. And you know what? At a certain point in time, as I said, tourism needs to be properly managed. The sky is not the limit. So that doesn't mean it. The fact of the matter is if 6,000 passenger cruise ships are coming into certain ports where the impact is negative, sorry, that's got to change. So 6,000 passenger cruise ship in Miami, you could probably tolerate it. 6,000 passenger cruise ship in Bermuda, probably not. That's exactly the point. You hit it. You hit the nail on the head. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. the weekend before Thanksgiving, which for most of you means it's the weekend before you're stuck at the mall uh, and Black Friday, and it's the weekend before what is traditionally the busiest travel weekend, at least in the U.S., in the year, which to me is the most overrated holiday of the year. Thanksgiving to me is an attempt of a, a, a obligatory dysfunctional family get-together. Um, however, for people who travel, it's the reason why they made that movie with Steve Martin, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It was Thanksgiving weekend. So let's look beyond that because that's already a mess and talk about what's going to be coming up next year for people who like to plan ahead. And there's a lot to be said for that. Joining me now, the editorial director of Lonely Planet, Tom Hall. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you. So you're already coming out with your list of the, of the hot places to travel in 2018. Absolutely, yes. I mean, this is the time of year when we start to look forward to 2018 and Lonely Planet puts our cards on the table and says, if you're going to go somewhere, these are the places we think you should travel to. Well, okay. Let me hear. Hit me. Okay, so our top country for the year is Chile in South America. Um, I think Chile is a wonderful destination. I have to tell you that that little string bean of a country has more going for it, from the driest desert in the world to the fjords and, and Patagonia. And then the coastline, people forget, there's a little village out there called La Serena, which is, you know, it's this 18th century fishing village, which is so gorgeous. And then the Lake District around, you know, Santiago. I mean, there's just so much to do. There is. And and as as you say, it's long and thin running north to south. So every journey you take involves some sort of change in climate. Um, And there's an amazing variation from the desert at the top to really cold, wet, windswept, spectacular scenery in Patagonia. And is it affordable? It is affordable. I mean, um, you know, it's not the cheapest destination in South America, but... um, Argentina's doing pretty well in that department. It it is. Um, 
but it is somewhere that offers very, very good value for money. Um, and it's also um, growing in awareness of it's growing as an outdoors destination. So I think that people in the past would have said, okay, I know I want to go to San Pedro in Atacama Desert. Maybe I want to go to, um, you know, to the Torres del Peña in the, in the south in Patagonia. But the mountains are never far away in Chile. They're, yeah. they're, they're ever present. They're just on one shoulder, as it were, and you've got the Pacific Ocean on the other. In addition to that, of course, Chile has Easter Island. Um, yes. And there surely is nobody listening to this program who hasn't dreamed about going and visiting that particular Well, my rock. secret flight of all secret flights is an around-the-world flight that does the Southern Hemisphere. Starts in Sydney, goes to Tahiti, and from Tahiti it flies directly, nonstop, to Easter Island, and then into Santiago. It's, it's Lan Chile, and they still fly that flight. It's amazing. What a, what a wonderful thing to do. I mean, I, my, my own experience of coming into Easter Island, and yeah. as you as you come into land, you, you look at the coast, and you can see some of the, the statues oh, there. Uh, there. Yeah, as, you know, it's on the approach. On the coast. It's, it's on the approach. quite incredible. And, and yes, and I realized that, you know, they always tried to do the mystery of where those statues came from. Those are the original air traffic controllers. <laughs> they, they, they were just out there with the orange cones. <laughs> yes. and, no, no, just kidding. No, but, but, you know, and if you plan it right, you don't have to spend five days on Easter Island. I mean, you, a, a day and a half to two days, is, 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 is about what you need. Yes, I would agree you with agree, that. Yeah. I would agree with that. And I, and I would spend the remainder of the time on the Chilean mainland, actually, Absolutely. because I think you can never have too much time. Particularly, now, the, yeah. you talked about the Lake District, and yeah. I think that that area, just wonderful for hiking and it's cycling. True. It and really is. Very, very good. Now, your second item on the list is a sleeper, South Korea. South Korea. I think it's a hot destination. First of all, it's a culinary explosion over there now. I mean, so many hot restaurants. And I'm not talking spicy. I'm talking great. And it's not all kimchi either. Yes, um, yeah. you know, a, a place that I think it, it feels like when we're choosing destinations for best in travel, sometimes you've got places where there's an anniversary. Sometimes you've got places where visitor numbers are, are going through the roof. You know, we talked about Iceland a few years ago. That was an example of that. With South Korea, it's more of a feeling that a destination's time has come and that it, it's it's risen in terms of profile, transport links, infrastructure, the, the food scene, infrastructure. And their everything. airport's amazing. That, is, that airport yeah. in Incheon, I have to tell you, ranks as my like number four of four. I mean, it's in the top four. Yeah. I mean, it, they have it together. Yes. Um, and I think, it, it, interestingly as well, you know, here we are, you know, we're sitting in London. Um, quite often people, if they're flying to Australia from here, they think about stopping off somewhere in Asia on the way. Yeah. Now, Singapore has always been a very noted stopover. Um, you know, Bangkok as well. And now you have now you have Korea. Now you have Korea, and rightly so because it's great airline flights through there as well. I teased you in the last segment of saying it's the high standard of living, low cost of living, and number one on my list, it's Portugal. Portugal is a absolutely stunningly underrated country. I, I call it the kingdom of a dead empire because for years, if I'd asked the Portuguese, well, you know, hey, what's happening? They want to talk about Vasco da Gama, you know. <laughs> but the point is, you know, their days of, of being a mighty sea power are gone. Their days of colonization are gone. It's all been given back. But talk about a cool place. I mean, they've got such great history. They're affordable. The people are terrific. The only place I would avoid in the summer is the Algarve. You know, Faro doesn't do it for me, although there's one great little seacoast village called Lagos, mm -hmm. which is really amazing. But if you use Lisbon as your hub and do day trips to Estoril and Sintra and, and all the coastal areas there, or go to Madeira, or the one secret that's going to explode this year, the Azores. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, you've outlined some of the highlights there. I mean, the, the, the Azores as a, as a destination, Europe's Galapagos, I think we can call it that. You know in what? Terms of, you know. I think that's an appropriate title. Most people don't realize this, and I'm old enough to remember it, so please forgive me. The Azores 
started as a refueling stop because the old TWA and Air France and even the TAP constellations couldn't make it all the way from New York to Lisbon. They had to stop in the Azores, where the U.S. had a huge uh, Air Force base during the Cold War, and NATO and all, all those things. But today, oh, my God, unbelievable. And they now have their own airline. Yes. They actually fly to New York now. Yes, they do. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things I think is fabulous about Portugal is the, the variety of things that there is there. You, you've talked about some of them. The second city of Portugal, Porto, yes. in, in the north, is a beautiful sort of rambling, ramshackle place with buildings sort of tumbling down to the river and all the port warehouses on one side. Wonderful at night, you know, with, with people sort of spilling out of bars. Um, and like everywhere in Portugal, affordable. And yeah. it's understandable when, when people come to Europe, when travellers come to Europe and they say, I really like it here, but wow, I'm getting through my travel budget quite quickly. If you go to Portugal, you will find that your money will go much further. You know, what we do when we travel, I'll take that back. What I do when I travel, because I'm delusional, is I like to test drive the location as to whether or not I could live there. And Portugal certainly qualifies. It's got everything I'd want. See, I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised at all. One of the other things that... that people often say to me about Portugal is I went to Lisbon and I thought wow there's there's all this hype about Barcelona and other cities in Spain and they're beautiful places yeah. but Lisbon has all of that and then some oh, yeah. um, and the, the history and the well-preserved buildings and also the ease of getting around and, and the food safety yes and the food. I will I, I don't know if you've been to this place but I, it, it becomes a must stop for me every time I go there because I bring my friends there to watch their reaction and it's a little place called Pop Sorda right and and they're known for, I mean, very good seafood, the wonderful ambiance, great location. They've moved to another location since I, their first location. Anywhere you go in the world and you, and you order a chocolate mousse for dessert, it's served in this little pathetic small champagne glass with an, a pathetically small spoon. And then you go to Pop Sorda and you order a chocolate mousse for dessert. And, every, and all the locals know that's what you order there. And you're expecting this stupid little champagne glass. And they put this large plate on your table empty. And then the waiter comes and taps you on the shoulder, and he or she is holding this humongous bowl with a ladle, and they give you the bowl and the ladle, and you know what's in there. You, it's like people are going into like diabetic comas uh, <laughs> uh, 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 because of the chocolate mousse there, but it's unbelievable. Well, food as theater with a taste to match sounds fantastic. Now, your number four on the list, that's a surprise to me. A real surprise to me, Djibouti. Djibouti, yes. Well, should we start by explaining where Djibouti is? You better. Yep. So, so Djibouti is on the uh, the northeast coast of Africa. Um, it borders Eritrea to the north, Ethiopia to the south. Um, it is an old um, French colonial territory, and um, and it's made some people's um, ears prick up a little when we when we've mentioned putting it on our list. Well, first of all, the reason why you had to explain where it is is because nobody knows where it is. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so um, one for the connoisseurs, I would say, but also... One for the connoisseurs. <laughs> um, you know what? That is the, the, the biggest cop-out brochure phrase I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> you know, like, but, you know, like uh, toxic waste dump. One for the connoisseurs. Yeah. Yeah. Happily, yeah. happily, yeah. Djibouti yeah. does have yeah. some absolutely stunning attractions. Um, in particular, it has some geothermal areas that would rival... Iceland that would rival parts of New Zealand, um, some of the you know the, the ones that you find in the US as well, with nobody there. So you can go to La Casale and you can go to other other places in in Djibouti, and you have the sulphurous smells and the spectacular strange scenery, um, and uh, and and there isn't 
and there are no other people there, so you have it more or less to yourself. Then you, as have we said, one for the connoisseurs. One for the connoisseurs. Yeah. 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 Um, so what what I would say is, um, if you've been to a few places in Africa and you're looking for somewhere different and somewhere which has yet to make it onto the radar, I would go. I would think Djibouti. And think about this. Let's be honest. There are 54 countries in Africa. Most of them have not made it on the radar. And yes, you know about Kenya. We know Tanzania. We know about. Egypt, that's you know, but not Djibouti. No, and and Djibouti also has something that a lot of those destinations don't, which is incredible diving. So you're going in the Red Sea, wow, and then we go diving there, um, and it and it really is an absolute gem for that. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. You know, I come from a city where I have given up trying to count the number of restaurants. That would be New York. Uh, I mean, I actually came up with an average once that there's something, if you look at both sides of any street, there's somewhere between 14 and 19 restaurants. You know, it's, it's, that's, it, the, the, the density of restaurants in New York is staggering. Well, I think the same can be said for London. And joining me now, the editor of a brand new site called Eater London, Adam Coughlin. How are you, man? Very well, thanks. Yeah. You heard my introduction. I mean, literally... I can walk from this hotel and be smack in the middle of about nine restaurants in about two minutes. Yeah, I, I mean, I think New York still uh, has approximately double the number of restaurants that London has. But I think the more more important thing is the fact that the, the, the quality of the restaurants in London over recent years, particularly the last five years. Oh, listen, I go back to the days of Julie's Pantry and Wimpy, so, you know, I'm, I'm looking up now all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I think it, it's interesting you mention New York, obviously not least because I'm now editing a website that uh, began in New York 11 years ago, but also because London has always referenced or looked to New York for inspiration, at least in it, uh, or, or sort of rather in it, mostly in its sort of renaissance phase over the, over, as I say, the last five to sort of 10 but years. But in the last five or six years, even say 10 years, I think you and I would both agree that the quality of the food the choices of the food, the options, the, the actual prices you're going to pay have, have really, I mean, created a great diversity and the quality's gotten so much better. For sure. I think London's always, one of, one of London's great assets, as, as is like, like New York, um, has been the fact that it's, it's such a melting pot for different cultures um, and, and cuisine types. I think what London, London's got a new confidence and I think uh, it's, it's been emboldened to sort of allow this modern british cuisine to develop that's what that that's what we didn't used to have there was a you know british food was 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 ridiculed worldwide uh, no kidding um and i think that that it, it, there's there's a there's a group a crop of chefs if you like that over the last you know 10 years since the days of st john that, that basically changed the changed the game in the in the mid 90s um and the river cafe in a, an italian restaurant um, that still exists, that turns 20, uh, 30 years this year. They, they were inspired by produce and by ingredients and by simple preparations as much as they were by the old-school French template of, of gastronomy. And, and, and Br British food used to basically be a poor, a poor man's version of French food. Now <laughs> it's, I think, much more confident in, its, in, in, in itself and its, and its uh, referencing of British history... Um, and concentrating on on what, what on what we do best here, which is you know, excellent fruit and vegetables, fabulous beef, grass-fed beef, <laughs> uh huh, 
um, which I know there's a raging debate across the Atlantic about what's better. <laughs> no, but you know what you're saying is that in the last 10 years, I see chefs who are proud of what they're doing. Precisely. And I think that's also, I think, since the recession, I think the democratization of eating out happened in London, uh, you know, in, in other places as well. But, but, but obviously here it was, it was quite acute. You could see the different types of operators that were allowed the opportunity to start a business post-recession because rents were cheaper, people wanted more for their money. So you would remove the tablecloths, the extraneous members of staff, the, the you know the lots, the silver, the crockery, every, everything. It was it was about the food and about the value. Yeah, precisely. Um, and it was the beginning of the street food scene in London at that hey, time. Hence Wagamama. Yeah, I mean, I go there all the time. I mean, just because it's easy, it's simple. You're not going to be disappointed, and and it's not going to kill your wallet. It's reliable. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, restaurants and operators have, have taken inspiration from the likes of, you know, Alan Yao when he created, it was a genius concept at the time. He's no longer involved in it anymore. But that, that you now see all the operators moving into that fast casual um, sort of uh, uh, model for, for, you know, because as you say, people people want value for money. They want they want it to be quick and they want it to be cheap. So um, I think... All right, so having said that, what are your favorites? Um, my my favorite restaurant in... I've got... I've got I'd probably... There's three. There's a there's a, um, a modern British restaurant in, in Shoreditch called Lyle's, which I think is the best representation of what old school British food meets the kind of new Nordic approach. So the the whole Rene Redzepi, Noma... Um, Modern no fish and chips. No, no. <laughs> there's no there's no fish and chips there. No I mean, it's bangers very, and mash. No, I, I mean I, of course you know when those things are done well they're they're, they're fabulous, um, and they're mocked because more often than not they're, they're not done well. They're not done well. But those. Right, so that's the first place. Yeah. What's the other two? Uh, a Japanese noodle bar in Soho called Koya Bar, which is a very um, it's an incredible um, uh, udon noodle principally uh, bar. Um, and 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 what are they doing differently there? So I mean, what they're doing differently is they're doing things properly. So they 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 create they make their own udon on on site. They make their own dashi broths on site. Um, but as well as those udon noodle balls, they're also doing some of the most for my my money the most inventive and creative sort of small plates in the city. So it, it's just it fab and it changes the, the the blackboard specials menu changes every day which is you know some of the the best treats in town can be found on that blackboard and your favorite dish um <laughs> good question uh i or their signature dish their, 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 their signature dish so for me actually they they do for me the best breakfast in london so they do a japanese bre- traditional japanese a noodle breakfast. breakfast yeah i love it it's actually grilled it's a grilled soy marinated grilled piece of fish some rice, some pickles, and a, and a bowl of miso soup. It's, it's the best start to the day you can have. I could eat that all day long. Yeah. Wow. And it's reasonable. It's, it, it's fabulous value for money, in my, in my view. Okay, that was number two. And uh, number three? And three, there's a, a restaurant in Bermondsey on a, a place called Maltby Street. And it's, it's, it's called 40 Maltby Street. And it's, it's a wine bar, essentially. But they have a fabulous, uh, quite under-the-radar chef by the name of uh, Steve Williams. And he he's just cooking for me some of the most beautiful British food 
in town. And as such, would we? So he'll he'll you know last time I went there there was just a beautiful mini kind of short crust pastry pie with duck and, wow. and a red cabbage kind of side. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guest hasn't changed since I first met her. She still looks nine years old and gets carded at bars. I know you do. Uh, but she just celebrated her 10th year here in London because she's the founder of a great blog and website called A Lady in London. Julie Falconer, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Except The Lady in London is never in London. <laughs> so true. every time I see you, I can always say, okay, where have you traveled lately? And you're going to tell me. Greece. Why? I was there on vacation, actually, visiting friends who live in Athens and then traveling around the islands for a little late shoulder season getaway. Well, I'm a big fan of shoulder season. I'm a fact of any season that's not called the on or high season. Absolutely. Uh, and Greece has a longer season. It does. Yeah. We were there the last week of October, and we still had sunshine. We were able to go out with T-shirts and flip-flops, and it was really, really nice. And were there still crowds at the Acropolis? There were some, but not as many as you get in the high season. That's great, because in the high season... It's like watching ants in an ant farm, <laughs> looking at those people just going up the hill and up the hill and up the hill. Yeah. It's a little crazy. It is. It is. It's a very popular destination. You know, one of the things that we've been talking about on this show is the whole concept of over-tourism. And Athens certainly has had its share. Venice. Definitely. You know, Barcelona. Yeah. I mean, Amsterdam. In, in Venice, I call the bridge of size the bridge of thighs. <laughs> because you, you, you can almost get pushed off the bridge. Everybody's there with their selfie sticks, and it's just, it's crazy. It is. It's getting to be a problem for a lot of cities. Well, if, you don't, if you're, if you're going to go to Greece, I'm a big fan of September, October, November, even eight, March and April. Yeah. I don't even care if it rains a little bit. You get to immerse yourself without rubbing shoulders with the world. Exactly. Yeah. And we found we got a lot of hotel upgrades and kind of complimentary things because there was just nobody there and people were excited to see us. And what was the biggest surprise for you? The biggest surprise actually was Santorini. There were more crowds there than I anticipated for late October, but there were a lot of cruise ships coming in. So you saw a lot of people coming in during the Day. Well, you see, that that brings up the other question. If you take a destination like Bermuda, for example, they limit the number of cruise ships that can be in that port in any given day. Oh, wow. Uh, and what they found is that it's a tax on it's a real tax on the infrastructure and cruise ship passengers. Let's get down to bottom line spending. They don't spend very much money. Interesting. Uh, they get in there. They might have a beer. They might buy a T-shirt and leave. And at the same time, it's a real impact on resources of the destination. Right. Yeah, that is a problem. So how many cruise ships did you count? You know, I've been in, I've been in St. Thomas where I've seen as many as seven cruise ships at the same time. Wow. And, and in Alaska on the inside passage in the summer. It's about the same. Wow. We saw at least one a day, but we there might have been more that we just didn't see. Exactly. But cool thing about Greece right now is even though they've had their economic trouble, troubles, their tourism has never been stronger. Yeah, and it seems like that. And it seems like there's kind of a, a feeling that things are turning around as well, which is great. And in America right now, especially uh, you know, given the drop in foreign arrivals, 
caused by everything from Brexit to Trump. I mean, that's yeah. what it is. It's the optics. The one thing that we've noticed is that since gas prices are only inching up, they're not spiking, Americans are, are tending to rediscover their own country now. Mm, that's they're great. not necessarily getting out of the country. They're, you know, there are 50 states and most Americans have been to one of them. You know, <laughs> really. I mean, there, there's a, a statistic I've seen that something like 62% of all Americans will die within 20 miles of where they were born. Mm. That's a little scary. Wow. Down from 82%, which is my parents' <laughs> generation, but it's still significant. Right. You just did a road trip. I did, yes. I did a road trip around England and Wales for five weeks, which was amazing. And now you're an American. I am. You drove on the wrong side of the road. I did not. I made my British boyfriend drive. (laughs) (laughs) Smartest thing you could ever do. And that's why you have a British boyfriend if you happen to live in London. Yes. He gets to do those British things, like look left, look right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. All right, but what was interesting? you, you You went through one of our favorite places where we like to do our radio show at least once a year, and that's Wales. Yes, it was amazing. We had been to Wales a couple of times, but just uh, Brecon Beacons, and it was really good to see a lot more of the country go up north and Did go down south. Did you start in Cardiff? Or you... We started up in the north, actually, really? and we went up. We went to Anglesey, Snowdonia. We went to Port Marion, which oh, is Oh, Port Marion yeah. is nuts. Yeah. Port Marion, for people who don't know, I mean, this is the one of the most surreal shows we've ever done, right? It is. Because it was the prisoner, was it? Yeah. Was it? That's where they shot the prisoner. Exactly. And and people are are comp- you think you got a problem in the United States with Trekkies? There are people there. You know, they only shot I think maybe a, a handful of shows, right? Right. And yet people show up in costume. Oh wow! They they they, they drive the mini moke, right? <laughs> and it, it this is the nuttiest little town. I think it was like started by one crazy guy yeah. who just kept on adding on things. He kept building. He was an architect and just wanted to show that modern architecture and, and commercial you, success could go together. If you want to see what could happen in a small place like Wales, if somebody dropped a lot of acid and then decided to build something, <laughs> that would be Port Marion. It is. It's a bit of Disney land on a hillside in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> One of the craziest shows you've ever done was there. So you did that. That's yeah, cool. Yeah. And then we went down south um, and we did some of the castles. We went to Powys Castle and Cardiff Castle and Castelkoch. And it was just amazing to see so many different castles and different types of them. I think there are more castles per capita in Wales. Yeah. Not necessarily inhabited or intact, <laughs> but they're there. It and seems you, that way. Right? I mean, everybody had a castle. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. You know, when we talk about hotels in London, there's been an explosion in the number of hotels, a lot of, of uh, new builds, a lot of conversions. But there are some hotels that I like to call secret hotels, and this is one of them. Secret for a number of reasons. First of all, because of its location, so close to the palace. And also because uh, if you know the right person to ask, you might just get the family recipe rice pudding. But I'm not going to go in beyond that except to introduce the managing director of Red Carnation Hotels, Jonathan Raggett. Jonathan, it's true about the rice pudding. (laughs) Good morning, Peter. Yes, uh, we serve the best rice pudding Anywhere in London. It's absolutely true, and it is a family recipe from uh, the owner's mom. Yes. The collection, actually, Red Carnation Hotels, yeah. is uh, is run by our founder and president, uh, Mrs. Beatrice Tolman, who is a fantastic chef. And uh, the type of foods we do are simple, classic, but beautifully prepared dishes. And, and rice pudding is one of them. And you even have your, her recipe book, which uh, she gave me, and actually it's good stuff. 
it, it is good stuff. It's easy to follow. It works. And uh, actually, we're on edition number five now. So we're updating it with new <laughs> recipes. How many hotels in Red Carnation now? We're 17 around the world. Wow. Uh, six here in this town, London. And uh, a lovely country house hotel in Dorset. Uh, we have three amazing properties in South Africa. Uh, probably I've been Florida. to two of those. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, the, the family Tolman, they herald from South Africa, and, and they're simply stunning, all three of them. You know, one of the things uh, about Brett Tolman, who's B. Tolman's son, is his commitment to the environment. And, and I can tell you for a fact, and you already know this for a fact, he puts his money where his mouth is. He's truly committed to this. And that's what you've done throughout your hotels. Yes. Recarnation Hotels is part of the Treadright Foundation, which is... Which last year we gave them the award at the World Travel Market for what they've done. Absolutely. And uh, to your point, um, we are a business and we're here to make money because that's what businesses do. But moreover, it is about caring about other people. It is about giving back. And Recarnation does a whole lot of that. In what way, though? Because, you know, when anybody, I'm going to be my cynical journalist for a second. Anybody who says to me, oh, we're doing great, I go, okay, let's follow the money. Where does the money go and how do you actually apply it? Okay, so um, one of the things I learned many years ago was when hotels these days ask you perhaps not to use your towel or to change your towel, I should say, for the second night or your sheets for a second night stay, um, a lot of people think, well, that's just the hotel making more money, which I guess it is. So what we do to... Uh, aggregate that is that we anybody that is prepared to for a couple of nights stay to keep the same towel and not have their bed changed we put monies towards that and so to your point about putting money where mouth is we have already contributed almost one million pounds from the Tolman pocket over the last five years to the Great Ormond Street Hospital and Starlight Foundation to those organizations for them for guests helping us not to have the, those those things washed Great Ormond Street. Is that where Kate had the baby? Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I th I remember hearing that. Okay. Uh, the Great Ormond Street is really for for, for children sure. who are, are very sick, and and you know the Starlight Foundation just very quickly is for children that are terminally ill, very short time to live, and they give them their wish. They give them their one wish. We to know about that in, in the states as well. But it's more than that. It's about soap. It's about right. bottles. It's about right. all the stuff that people don't even think about. They, they have to go somewhere. Sure. And there's a great wastage. Hotels are notoriously luxury hotels. Wastage is huge because the beautiful big bars of soap, the, the shampoos, the conditioners. Guests use those once or twice from these big, big bottles. So we have a recycling uh, plant that comes through. It's a third party. They come and collect this from us. Um, they deal with it. And they put it into new bottles. And they send it out to countries. Countries that don't have soap, don't have shampoo. So it's recycled and it's used again. And the people, the people that actually recycle that here in the UK are people that are unemployed, people that can't get jobs. So the whole circle comes together. We're employing people that can do that and then people get, um, you know, the, the, these, uh, these soaps. And they've been used once or twice. And, you know, when you think about it, Nobody ever thinks about where does the soap go when I check right, out, right? You know, and and a lot of these organizations, even in the states now, are doing something where they're actually taking the soap, creating new bars, and getting them to the people who actually need them the most. Because people don't realize that if you can't wash your hands, your likelihood of getting sick right. is ten times greater. Yeah, we just live in a world today of uh, the gap. I believe of the haves and the have-nots just gets bigger and bigger. And morally, is the right thing to do. And we all need to look at what we're doing. We still offer the very best luxury to any guest that stays in our hotels. But what else can we do to help others? Exactly. And the point is, 
The only thing I would really wish uh, hotels would do is if you're going to put a little card on my bed asking you to be part of the responsibility chain, don't make it a plastic card. <laughs> it sends the wrong message because you're going, really? Right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, plastic, as you mentioned, the word is is, is is just a horrible thing. And certainly the one-time-use plastic we're, we're ridding of. So you won't find plastic straws now in, in Red Carnation hotels. Um, you won't find the uh, disposable cups that are made of plastic that are recyclable. So we're analysing everything within our hotels so that we are doing our bits to you know, literally yeah, help the climate. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.